The long-awaited second tranche of IRS regulatory guidance on qualified opportunity funds will produce a set of principles and safe harbors that should finally give investors the ability to move forward. But what exactly will the regulations reveal? Find out next as I'm joined by senior Treasury official Daniel Kowalski on a special Monday edition of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. And today I'm coming to you from the ASD Summit on Opportunity Zones at the Williamsburg Hotel in Brooklyn, New York. And with IRS guidance expected to be released any day now, I have the pleasure of being joined in person with Daniel Kowalski, Counselor to the Secretary of the Treasury. Dan, thanks for joining me and welcome to the podcast. Very happy to be here, Jimmy. Thank you. Great. Yeah, I'm excited to begin uh, this conversation. Sure. I think it's a very timely Absolutely. discussion. So as I mentioned, your title at the Treasury Department is Counselor to the Secretary. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about your role in the department? Well, I, I help handle domestic policy issues for the Treasury Secretary. He has a fairly small staff of direct reports. I am one of those people. I handle some tax lead on opportunity zones. I also work on higher education issues, healthcare issues, social security. So a lot of the non-tax domestic policy portfolio. Good. And tell me a little bit more about your background. Can you tell me your personal story of how you got to be where you are today in the, in the Treasury Department? Well, I met Secretary Mnuchin during the Trump campaign. He and I worked together on the Trump tax plan for the campaign. After we won the election, I expressed a desire to help him get tax reform across the finish line, and he hired me the day after he was confirmed. He uh, offered to do it before he was confirmed, but I was superstitious and didn't want to do that until it was all done. And so I've been with Treasury uh, and working for the Secretary since uh, March of 2017. Good. You didn't want to count your chickens before they hatch, so to speak. That's right. And didn't want to, didn't want to jinx this confirmation, right? <laughs> of course. Of course not. So, uh, so shifting to Opportunity Zones now, can you give me the big picture? Uh, what is Treasury's vision for the Opportunity Zones policy? Well, we believe Opportunity Zones can be transformational. Uh, we believe in the power of capital investment to provide economic growth and jobs and wealth creation in these communities. What we really see Opportunity Zones doing is promoting a partnership between those with capital and communities that haven't seen investments in years. Uh, basically, the incentive will provide a reason for people to take a look at some of these low-income areas and determine and see that there's potential there and ideas there that can be invested in and can lead to growth and wealth creation. And the first round of IRS guidance, the first tranche of regulatory guidance, so to speak, came out last October, 
Yes. And there was an IRS hearing this past February on Valentine's Day it of was. all days. Yes, exactly. Uh, this, the second tranche was completed by your department, more or less, uh, and submitted to OIRA, which is a division of the White House Office of Management and Budget, I believe. Is, is, yes, did I get that right? That's right. And that second tranche should be released and available for public comment by the end of this month, I've, I've heard you say a couple of times, if I understand correctly. What are some of the key issues that should be addressed by this second tranche of guidance? Well, a number of them we had uh, spoken about in the preamble to the first tranche, which you know, included what's original use, what's substantially all, um, what does it mean for substantial improvement, and we'll talk about substantial improvement more in the context of an operating business. I, I think that that's important, what we're trying to get at in the second tranches, is how can we expand from real estate into operating businesses. Uh, we'll talk a little more about how working capital how working capital fits into this, whether it should be uh, applied to the operating business and not just the real estate context. Uh, we'll, we'll talk also about leasing and the importance that leasing is so important to how businesses actually get things done. You know, uh, the, the statute doesn't speak explicitly to how leasing should be handled, and we'll provide a, a good explanation of how that works into the calculation of the asset tests. We'll talk also about how the 50% um, of gross income test works for a qualified opportunity zone business, which again is something that's very important. We've said on a number of occasions that we don't want an opportunity zone business's income to have to come just from the opportunity zone, that that would be far too limiting to unlocking the potential that these areas have. And what we'll provide in the regulations are some uh, what we hope are easy to apply safe harbors that will let us know that there is indeed sufficient substantial business activity taking place in the zone. Yeah, you, you've uh, started to address my next question. I was going to ask you <laughs> Sorry. about, no, that's okay. That's okay. I, I was going to ask you about the issue of the 50% gross income test for qualified opportunity zone business or QOZBs. Yes. Um, that's caused some concern because, you know, people are seeing it and say, well, what if my business grows and we start selling more than 50% of our income starts coming from outside the zone? Will I be able to invest in a business that, that sells primarily outside of the zone? And can you offer some clarification on that concern? Yeah, well, the clarification is we hear you and we understand. And the next set of regulations will address some I think fairly simple rules based on things like employment or where managerial decisions are made, the types of activities that one thinks about as being sort of headquarters related. Uh, and to the extent that that is in the zone, you will be perhaps able to qualify through the safe harbors. And if I may paraphrase something you said last week, you, Treasury wants Sell the, to the businesses world. absolutely. You, to, the, the, that's right. I mean, ultimately, 
we want to see the next Google come from an app opportunity zone. We, we want businesses that make a big impact to locate in the, these areas and bring jobs and growth and help to uh, bring them up. That's what opportunity zones are about. The, the, uh, a qualified opportunity zone business needn't be only a dry cleaners or a car wash or some Absolutely. local business like that. Absolutely. Although, although certainly those things will be important, and I think those are going to be the pathways to wealth for some of the residents who are in these communities, right? Of course. Uh, but but the, the engine may well be the entrepreneur from outside who comes into the zone and says, well, I've got to start my business somewhere. This is, this is a good somewhere. I've got an incentive for being here. We're going to help. We're, I'm going to grow my business, and if it grows this neighborhood, so much the better for all of us, right? That's right. Yeah, I can't, can't argue with that. Could you briefly touch on a few other issues that you've spoken publicly about? Uh, you mentioned leased property um, in, in our uh, previous question, but I know the issues of leveraged distributions, secondary purchases, interim gains, carried interest, how that may be treated. Uh, can, can you touch upon some of those topics? Yes. Um, we'll start with carried interest. Uh, on that one, it seems to us that the statute is clear that the that the cash that is eligible for tax-free benefits, the capital that's eligible for tax-free benefits has to be from capital gains and it has to be deposited in cash into the fund. And carried interest is really not that because it's, it, it's not coming from previously earned capital. And so it, it probably will not qualify. Probably not what some people want to hear, but I think you're right. It's it's not it's not the the capital that is receiving right. the tax exactly. advantage. And 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 ultimately, the industry will learn how to work around that. Ultimately, I mean, it, you will at least know for for a developer. Well, you were paying tax on that, whether it was in an opportunity or not in an opportunity zone. To the extent that you're uh, getting business that you wouldn't have otherwise, that that should be okay. Um, with respect to secondary purchases, we seems to us that uh, as long as the tax consequences for both the the seller and the buyer are handled appropriately, there should be no issue with that. Leverage distributions, the, the statute is clear that there's no basis in the capital gain that is deposited into the fund upon deposit. So you really won't be able to withdraw that until there's basis from that, which will come, you know, certainly after 10 years when all the basis comes back. But before that point, if there is any appreciation in the, 
in the business and someone is in a bank is willing to lend you the money to be able to extract that, you should be able to extract that value. And that's basically the way real estate works generally. We're not trying to disrupt the way the industry typically works, but I think it's important to note that what's different is that you haven't paid tax on the capital gains deposited into the into the deal, right? And so you shouldn't be able to withdraw that from the deal without tax consequences since you didn't have any tax paid on it in the first instance. All right, that, that seems to make sense to me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, and interim gains was another point. Um, interim gains is, it's tough. I mean, the... We understand that that there are some who would like to be able to start a business and then sell it and then move on. We don't believe that the statute provides for that if you were to write the statute different. If you were to write the statute to say that the, the COAF wasn't a taxpayer, in our view, it would look differently, just textually. And there's also from our standpoint, some concern that it, that it may not be an appropriate policy either because part of what we're trying to do here is to redevelop low-income communities and the in and out that might go along with the churn may not actually be that beneficial for these communities. I mean, I think we see the long-term partnership as being an important component of the program. At the end of the day, the intent of the program is to create more jobs and revitalize low-income communities. Right. So and if they don't stay there, it's hard to see where that... It makes it harder to see that that goal will be achieved. Sure. You spoke... Last week I heard you speak in Dallas at the COASIS Coalition Opportunity Zone Super Conference, and today I heard you speak uh, here in Brooklyn at the ASD Summit on Opportunity Zones. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, in both instances... Uh, the concept of a quaff or a, a investment in an opportunity zone setting up as a fund first primarily to do some prospecting work and then later on making the quaff election, which is kind of an interesting concept. Can you speak more to that? Yes. The, there's nothing prohibiting a fund from being formed in order to think about investing in a qualified opportunity zone. So that QAF could potentially use borrowed money or someone could contribute non-capital gains income to that, you know, the mixed fund investment, which is allowed under the statute, so that you can go out and help do some of the pre-development activities that need to be done. You could perhaps even even go so far as to do some, some permitting activities and things like that. What makes, what has to happen under the statute, however, is that the QAF must be qualified before it accepts capital gains income into the fund. So you can do a number of activities to get yourself set up 
for then being able to take the tax-preferred investment. And then once you have the tax-preferred investment, hit the ground running. Uh, and then some of the daunting timelines that the statute seems to provide might look a little less daunting in that case because you, you, you have a clear vision of what you're trying to accomplish once you, once you get the, the capital gains income and you can, you can get that into the fund and then you know, move forward with your plan using the 31-month working capital. It gives you a little more runway before that 31-month clock starts Precisely. ticking. And, that is, and, and that's why I pointed it out last week, because that may not necessarily be apparent to everyone. And I think it's important that as you think about it, that there are, there are ways in which you can approach a development project responsibly here and still not run afoul of some of the timelines. Sure, that makes sense. Sorry if I'm making you repeat yourself here a little bit, but I want to go back to you spoke about leverage distributions, and I, I had a question for you um, about investor liquidity in 2027 when that tax bill comes due on the original gain. Can they draw out capital from the investment, or what kind of capital are they allowed to draw out from the investment to, to be able to pay that, that tax bill? Well, certainly they always have the option of refinancing, right? Um, in 2027, they may also have some, some basis as well, and you can withdraw the basis. There'll be more on, on how the 5 and 10% basis bump-ups work in the next set of regulations, and those are things that could help address this situation. Good. That's the, uh, the 10 and 15% basis yes, step-ups, exactly, right? right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, President Trump signed an executive order last December that established the White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council. What role do you see that council playing in Opportunity Zones? Well, the council will help investors in Opportunity Zones know what other federal resources are available to help them take on the task of redevelopment in some of these low-income communities. So for a manufacturer who wants to build a new plant in an opportunity zone but is concerned about workforce, say, are there things being done by the, the labor department, education department, are there other resources that they can bring to bear to ensure that you have the appropriate workforce for when that plant opens? Uh, similarly, for uh, investors who say they want to do a real estate deal and, and, and they're a little bit short, are there other federal incentives that could be used to kind of be a gap closer in that case? And Part of Opportunity Zones is to bring new people into investing in these communities, and they may not be as familiar with some of the existing resources because that's, that's, that's not their world right now, right? And so what we're trying to do is to use the council to make, make them have uh, almost a one-stop shop where they can know what other resources are available, 
how can those be brought to bear? And we're also considering through the council whether it's possible for some of these programs to grant preference points or other in a tie-breaking situation would, would those grants go to an opportunity zone over a non-opportunity zone because of our desire to help build up these communities all else being equal with two separate projects if one's in an oz give it a little that's, nudge that's correct that that's that's what we're thinking and and in some cases that may be easier to do than others but uh, the council agencies and staff are going through a process right now of looking to see where those opportunities exist. Too much opportunity. Too much use of the word opportunity, right? It's hard to avoid sometimes, it but I, yes. I, I don't mind it. Okay. What, what role do you see community banks, CDFIs, CDCs, MDIs, and et cetera, playing in opportunity zone community development? Well. I believe they can serve as an important middleman between the communities and the investors who aren't as familiar with these communities. They have capacity and intimate knowledge of the places where they operate and so can really help serve as, as the bridge between someone who may not have the familiarity, because remember, we're looking for opportunity zones to bring new investors into these areas to, to basically help both sides of the transaction understand each other a little bit more. In addition, um, you know, CDFIs could, could serve as some of the financing mechanisms ask an MDI. So there, I think there are roles for these organizations and the Opportunity Zones ecosystem. I, I think that's still being worked out in the field, though. Yeah, it seems like we haven't really seen them step up yet the way that, that we might have expected them to or might like them to. I would agree with that statement, yes. And what, what can local leaders do to bring capital to their communities? What kind of levers can they pull? Well, I think they have a... I think they have a number of levers. I think the first thing they can help do is to help the, the affected communities determine what makes sense to try and do in, in the particular opportunity zone. I've said at other talks that I've given that, that this is the time for communities to look at ideas that they had that haven't penciled out in the past and see whether or not the opportunity zone incentive is enough to kind of kick that from a nope, can't do it, to a yes, we can do it, and then to go out and do that. I think local jurisdictions can also be helpful in understanding the tightness of some of the time frames in relation to opportunity zone investing. And so to the extent that they can expedite processing of permits or other entitlements that may be necessary from the local government to, to be cognizant of that and, and make it ultimately a policy of that community to say that we welcome opportunity zone investing and th these are the things that we're going to do in order to try and make that make that happen. We're going to do what we can. And that reduces cost too, which makes it an even 
better business prospect, perhaps. Whatever they can do to eliminate some of that red tape up front for opportunity zones. Exactly. Would be, would be most welcome. So, Dan, just to wrap things up here, I want to get your take. What, what will we see in further rounds of guidance uh, later in the year? And what are the next steps that the Treasury Department is taking? Well, right now we are, right now we are working to get the second set across the finish line. There are certainly going to be some things that are left unsaid, particularly on the um, abusive situation, penalty type of uh, how do you unwind uh, a clearly fraudulent activity, and, and how how do you how do you unwind that? Right? We'll speak to those kinds of things. I think that can be somewhat complicated to write. And so we've put that towards the end because what we're trying to do at Treasury is to provide the guidance that's needed for investment to occur first. And, and I believe that we'll be in a pretty good situation with respect to that after the second set comes out. The next set would then you know, get into the comments. I, we certainly at Treasury welcome all listeners' comments on aspects of the regulations because that's important to us. Uh, I think as readers, careful readers will see, we listen to some comments in the first instance and are going to make revisions in the second set of regulations that are in response to some things that were done in the first. And I would expect that that same tradition would occur in the third. Um, and in addition to kind of other things that might have been left out and, and some of this uh, final um, how, do we, how do we identify and explain what happens to bad actors. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think this second tranche will go a long way toward I don't want to use the word finalize, but you know finalize the, uh, the, the, the regulations. Um, as, as much as they can be. Investors should have a lot of confidence uh, going forward after the second set. And then the third set uh, later this year will be more reactionary, putting in bad actor provisions. Yeah. I, I, I would not expect investors should be able to say that they're waiting for further guidance after they see the second set of regulations. The, the second set of regulations clearly will not answer all questions, I guess, in the year and a half that I've been involved in this. Everybody's got a, a slightly different business case that won't be addressed in the regulations. But what you will have in the regulations is a set of, of principles and safe harbors, bright line kind of tests that will give you the ability to say, yes, that, that fits my situation or it doesn't fit my situation. So by listening to people who want to work, to work in this field, reading the comments, I think we have addressed many of the concerns that have been issued. And so I, I believe that there will be there will be the information out there in a few weeks that I think the community will need to be able to digest and say, okay, this is permissible. This is, I'm not, I'm not going to get burned later, which is what I think people are afraid of. And when that 
when that second tranche is available for public comment, how, how can my listeners submit public comment? What's the best way for them to do that? Well, all the, regu all the comments should be submitted through regulations.gov. Uh, I'm sure you're, you will post on uh, OpportunityDB links to the, to the regulations. I will, absolutely. And they, and they will, uh, you'll have 60 days from when they hit the federal register in order to make your comments. That will all be, be prominent. It's, it's a web-based system. You can upload documents or you can type it in into a, into a form. Uh, no, no, no way is better than another. Okay. Uh, but what's important is that you let us know whether this seems to be helpful or not helpful, and if not helpful, how the decisions that we've made um, are contrary to the statute. Because that's, that's the important thing is we are, we are providing guidance on a law that Congress has passed. And our job at Treasury is to try and faithfully execute that law. So we can't write a new law, but we can do the best we can and are trying to do the best we can in order to make uh, Opportunity Zones a, a useful and friendly business development tool. Excellent. Well, for my listeners out there, I'll have links to regulations.gov and, and all the other resources that Dan and I discussed um, in today's episode on our show notes page, you can find those at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Dan, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I know you got to head out and catch a flight soon, so safe travels, and I hope to hear from you soon. Well, thank you, Jimmy. It was uh, very enjoyable and pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.